0: You're listening to Certify, Canada's class actions podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week, I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action. Thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi, so we're here with Valerie Moore from Howie Saxon Henry Lawyer. She's an associate there. Hi there, Valerie. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, So, why don't we start with uh, a bit about you and your practice? Tell us uh, what your experience is, what your practice is, how you came to be a class actions lawyer.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you again for inviting me uh, on this podcast. I think it's such a, a great idea, and I'm just feel very privileged to be here with you. Thank you. So, uh, like you mentioned, I'm an associate at Howie Sachs & Henry here in Toronto. Howie Sachs & Henry was started uh, over 20 years ago now by Jim Howie, Neil Sachs and Michael Henry and they really started this firm with the intention of being a group of trial lawyers that are ready to serve plaintiffs that are seriously injured and we've always been known really to help people in in the most catastrophic cases, catastrophic car accidents, obstetrics malpractice cases, uh, and so on. So I was very lucky to be able to join Howie Saxon Henry along with Paul Miller in January of 2017. And really the intention when we joined Howie Saxon Henry was to continue to build and expand expand, uh, Paul Miller's class action and mass tort practice. Before that, though, uh, I had actually known Paul Miller for about 15 years, and the story of how I got to know Paul and how I got into class actions are pretty uh, intermingled, so I'll give you a brief overview of that. Great. Um, Basically, when I was 15 years old, I had gone on a student exchange uh, in France, and I had spent about a month there with a family. And so in August, 2005, I was flying home on my way back to be reunited with my family and to spend time with my student here in Canada. Um, unfortunately, the weather that day was uh, quite terrible and we had very severe thunderstorms. And so the plane, when we went to land ended up actually overshooting the runway, uh, breaking and, and caught fire immediately upon, upon crashing. Um, so luckily, and that's kind of an understatement, I would say myself and all of the other passengers m- managed to evacuate the plane without anyone um, passing away. So obviously the crash had a pretty serious impact on me. Like I said, I was 15 years old. Uh, luckily I didn't suffer any any major injuries, but there were definitely a lot of passengers who suffered quite serious orthopedic injuries from having to, to jump off the plane without a slide. And uh, little did I know that that day, while I'm just you know, thankful to, to be alive, Paul Miller had gotten a call uh, to, to be counsel on the case. And so he and Joe Fiorante from Camp Fiorante-Morgerman-Matthews in Vancouver ended up being co-counsel on what would be the class action for all passengers on board that flight. So I basically ended up spending the next seven years involved uh, in a class action as a a class member, and I really got to see these lawyers do their best to get us answers about how and why this happened. Um, And you know, some people might disagree with this statement, but oftentimes that's just what class members are looking for, right, in situations Mm -hmm. that happen uh, for no rhyme or reason no amount of settlement is going to turn back time or make things any better and what we're really looking for at the end of the day in a lot of our cases and in this particular case as well is just an explanation as to why this happened how this happened and what can be done to make sure that this doesn't happen again for for future passengers in this case mm-hmm. um so yeah so fast forward about 10 years i was out of law school looking for articles and i ended up working for paul miller quite by coincidence And now today I work with Paul and Joe Fiorante as well, very closely on aviation files and and a couple other files that I'm sure we'll get into later on today. So in a nutshell, that is how I ended up where I am.
0: (laughs) Okay, thanks. So uh, let's rewind back to uh, your experience with the Air France class action. Did you get the answers you were looking for?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we got answers as to... Uh, basically, why the plane crashed, and and what the experts that were hired by the class action lawyers ended up uh, opining was that, first of all, the plane ended up landing, uh, basically a little bit more than halfway down the runway. So the first, you know, c- contributing factor to the crash was the fact that the plane didn't land early enough. Mm-hmm. The second freak sort of uh, factor that came into play that no one really could have predicted was that there was a severe gust of wind that basically came and then pushed the plane even further. So the fact that it had landed already halfway down, then there was this wind that came to push them through, um, just made it so that that in combination with the the severe weather that was going on that day made it so that even though they tried to break, they just didn't have enough room at the end. Mm-hmm. The second thing, which has been um, um, investigated quite a bit in in many areas er- and you know this isn't the first plane to overshot or run- uh, overshoot a runway nor is it the last unfortunately mm-hmm. is that the length of the runway um, actually although it's it, it's long there's there are some people and there are some experts that are implying that that runways of that size that um, have these types of planes land on them should actually be extended even longer um, so those were, those were facts that if we hadn't gone through the class action process, I don't know if we would have gotten answers to, and obviously those are, those are helpful things to know for, for the future, right? Mm-hmm. For sure.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, the crash ha- uh, or the, the botch landing happened in 2005, and I believe the settlement was in 2011, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, yeah, about six or seven years from, from start to finish. Um, it, it was extensively litigated. There was, uh, you know, issues that, procedural issues that were litigated uh, up the courts. But in the end, um, I, I'm pretty sure the chief justice at the time ended up commending class counsel. You can see this in the decision. He mm-hmm. specifically says uh, that this was real justice for, for real people. Um, and the, the injuries varied, right? Mm-hmm. You, you had people like myself who luckily we were young and, and able to recover quite quickly, but there was others like I, like I mentioned who had quite serious uh, orthopedic injuries. A lot of people that were business people traveling for work um that obviously you know being in a crash like this had a huge impact on their on their earning capacity mm-hmm. and the the class council were able to actually do almost an individual assessment of the damages at, at that point which when you have a small class that's identifiable is, is an easier thing to do than obviously in some other class action cases where you don't actually know how big your class size is going to be um so that was one of the reasons why uh, they ended up settling um for for Compensation that that everyone found quite reasonable, actually, given the circumstances.
0: Great, sounds like a great resolution. So, what do yeah, you tell what, what do you tell your uh, the the class members in the class actions that you deal with now? What do you tell them when something takes five, six, seven years?
1: Yeah, it's it's hard. It's it's not just our class action cases that take that long, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's all it's all types of personal injury matters. Um, I tell them that I understand and that I know what it's like, and even though that might not make things any better, at least they know that I can sympathize with their position. Um, I tell them that it's in everyone's interest to try and get things done as quickly as possible. But the other thing to remember, and again, I come from a personal injury background, right? When events happen, even if I wanted to settle a case in the first year, I don't think I would be doing my clients any service by getting the case resolved that quickly because we just don't know with these types of injuries, again, when just talking about plane crashes in general, or this one specifically, where you sort of have minor, moderate, soft tissue injury cases and in maybe, you know, populations that are maybe more elderly. the It takes time for those injuries to actually settle in. It takes time for people to actually, you know, accept that yes, these are my limitations now. And usually you don't start seeing that until about the two year mark, right? Mm -hmm. So that's when you can start actually evaluating. So setting aside all the issues of liability that that you have to deal with, um, it does still take about two years for us to get an accurate idea of what a plaintiff's life was like before and how it is two years since the accident. So I do try and explain to them that it's also in their best interest for the case not to take that long, or or not to be resolved that quickly. I mean, um, the other thing that you know I, I do explain to all my clients is sometimes some of it is out of our control. You know, court delays, even before COVID, were a very real reality. Mm-hmm. Um, in class cases, we do have to do certification, which can take anywhere, from, you know, one to two, and that's in the most you know simple, basic, uncontested uh, motions, but those still take time. So I try and remind them that you know they need to focus on themselves they need to focus on on their rehabilitation and getting better and that we we are here to take the lawsuit off of their hands right even if it's an uh, even if it's a class action I still try and and build rapport with the class members so that they know that we're there for them mm-hmm. um, so all of that sort of helps when it's year 5 and and there still hasn't been uh, a resolution so the investment in the class member initially early on uh helps with, with how long the process takes.
0: Okay, great. And uh, do you just do personal injury actions now? I mean, cl- whether they're class actions or mass torts or whatever, or do you do other kinds like consumer?
1: N- no, we, we do uh, our, I always say like our subject matter expertise really is personal injury. And then we just happen to also uh, be after some class actions and mass torts, but, but we really stick to personal injury uh, cases on the plaintiff
0: side. Okay, great. So, uh, the, re- the sort of main subject of this uh, podcast today is really to talk about the difference between mass torts and class actions, and uh, I think you're ideal to discuss this because really you, you, you work on both sides of the fence, right, you do mass torts and you do class actions. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, first of all, let's talk about the, the similarities. I mean, I, I guess the similarities are kind of obvious, but let's cover that off first. What, what are the similarities?
1: Sure. I mean, for us, the similarities are, um, you know, we're representing plaintiffs. They, they have been injured in some sort of way by various different uh, scenarios. So whether they are involved in a plane crash, whether they were uh, injured as a result of a, a medical product, uh, all of our cases on the class action and mass tort side are really um, personal injury types of cases. The other similarities that we do try and do for both of our master and class action cases is trying to figure out what the damages are. We really try and, and see if we can um, get a reasonable assessment of damages for either individual clients or uh, class action clients.
0: Then how do you decide, um, because you're doing this, the same kinds of cases, some for mass tort, some for class actions. How do you decide which route to go down? Are there, are there certain types of cases that are more amenable to one procedure or the other?
1: Sure. So the first thing we try and look at is really when we get approached with the case and we haven't yet decided whether we're going to pursue it as a mass tort or a class action Is we do try and do some research to see well how many people do we think have been impacted by this proposed case right so we do actually spend quite a bit of time even before deciding to take a case on doing research Um, so we do research online if we need to we reach out to experts if the case has been in the media we try and reach out to to the media to see if they have any more information about the proposed case so we do try and take a look like and see, okay, how many people do we think have, have been impacted by this event? And then the second thing we try and establish pretty early on for personal injury cases is what are the damages? And and I started talking about this a little bit earlier because mm-hmm. um, a, a lot a lot of it is going to turn on what the damages are going to be when we try and decide whether we want to pursue it as a mass tort or a class action. So. To give you an example, uh, the St. Jude defibrillator case is is a perfect example of a case that we started just after coming to Howie Saxon Henry in early 2017, and we partnered with uh, Margaret Waddell, who had also just started Waddell Phillips at the time. And it quickly became obvious to the team that although, you know, the notice about this potential um, uh, defective battery in these defibrillators had gone out to over 8,000 people, the damages were still relatively minor to moderate when when we really took at a took a look at it from a bird's point of view these were elderly populations they were already clearly at risk of some heart disease or else or, or heart issues or else they wouldn't have had this defibrillator in the first place. So usually, those are the types of cases uh, that we end up seeing. We have a large volume of people, but most of the damages are going to be minor to moderate, and they're going to be relatively the same across the class, and so the class action would be a preferable uh, procedure for those cases. Other types of cases we do where damages are more significant, for example, the transvaginal mesh ligation or hernia mesh ligation, we decide pretty early on that because Um, we hear our clients stories and we hear what we've been through we see that the value of damages is is quite significant and we also see that every person has had a very different experience because of the event and so when the damages are higher and the experiences are really different then that's usually one of the main deciding factors uh, to decide to go mass tort instead of class action but again it's it's really done on a case-by-case basis
0: okay great Uh, so and then when do you decide which option you'll go with? So you sort of answered this just, just now, but uh, do you generally just issue a class action to toll the limitation period and then go about finding clients and then decide, or do you begin issuing individual claims straight away, or how does that work?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's something that we do decide pretty early on. If we get a case and, and we see that it has merits and we do our research that I just uh, discussed and we assess that the damages are X or Y, That's usually when we decide to either issue this as a class action or start uh, the claim as a mass tort. We've never actually issued a class action to purposely toll limitation. I I don't think that's ever something that we've um, ever felt the need to do. And most of the time, actually, class actions have already been filed in the Mm -hmm. cases that um, we get approached on for a mass tort. But what we do make sure we do is we take a look at those class action pleadings very carefully to make sure that uh, if we are going to be relying on them to toll the limitation period, that we actually know what they are tolling. So, just to give you an example, in our mesh mass tort cases, there are a number of class actions that have been filed, but they are only filed in relation to very specific products, mm-hmm. and so we have mass tort cases that ha- might have the same manufacturer, but the product. Uh, that is being litigated is not covered by the class action. So in that case, we treat it just like any other regular case in terms of uh, how to decide on a limitation period. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Uh, And then presumably in a mass tort, unlike a class action, you have to find a reasonably sizable group of clients, right? Because uh, you you can't just rely on one rep plaintiff to represent a class that may making may come forward later or may not come forward whatever but you have to actually find all of your clients in a mass tort scenario and it sounds like you do that up front how about how do you go about doing that
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And it's definitely not something that is easy to do. I mean, we're very lucky at Howie Saxon-Henry to first of all, like already have a very good reputation in the personal injury industry and with the general public for our work in in helping people. So that definitely helps having that reputation already established in terms of people finding us. Uh, We definitely, like I said, do a lot of research. We talk to experts to get an idea of how many people might be out there And then the reality is nowadays, you know, the internet is where people go for information and whether we like it or not, that's just the world that we're living in. So we do work really hard to make sure that we're putting up accurate and informative pages uh, for people to find us. And we do also work obviously with um, search engine optimization experts to make sure that our content is easily findable for people who are looking for help in that particular area. Um, But again, it's a case by case basis. So, for example, in other cases, we go about finding our clients by hosting town halls. So our our Meflikon case is a really good example of how we managed to get retained by almost 1300 plaintiffs in about a year and a half. Um, So that case, just to give you a bit of background, is against the government of Canada and it alleges that they ordered troops to take this anti-malarial medication, methylquin without disclosing the side effects essentially. Mm -hmm. So what we did in that case was we went uh, across the country. We went to different legions. We went to Edmonton, we went to New Brunswick, we went to Quebec, we were here in Toronto. And we basically, you know, presented what our case was going to be about, gave people the relevant information, gave them any information in terms of the medical resources that were available to them, and we left it at that. And and then once people had the information, it was up to them to decide whether they wanted to contact us and perhaps pursue a case with us. And then, and then if they decided to go down that road, then we obviously have individual conversations with them. But the, the veteran community in, in that case was a huge support in helping us find um, the potential people. And again, our goal when we do these things is to just give people the information and then it really is their own individual decision whether they decide to to pursue the case with us. So it's definitely not a one size fits all approach. It's something that we're constantly working on and it's something that we discuss for every single new case. And obviously with COVID, you know, it's meant adapting to to the realities that we can't do a lot of this in person, that we were used to doing and that we really enjoyed doing, but we've been able to adapt, and, and the virtual town halls and the virtual webinars are, are just as effective, if not if not more, right? It it, it brings it, it makes it very accessible for clients from all different types of backgrounds to simply log into their computer, and listen to us. So we've had really good success with that approach as well. Great. So uh, just a follow-on from that.
0: Uh, do you, have, has anyone ever contacted you and said, you know, I, I want to, I want to be part of this, but I don't want to have my name on it. I just want to be part of a class. But you're doing a mass tort for that, for that issue. Have you ever had that?
1: Yeah, it is something that that we do have to deal with. Um, we present them with a few options. So in Mepolyn, for example, although we intend to issue claims at the end of the day for every single one of our clients, we've we basically issued three separate claims to cover three different um, time periods. Mm -hmm. And so for those uh, first, you know, 100 or so plaintiffs, we made sure that we had their, you know, formal consent to have their name filed in the lawsuit. So they all know that their name is going to be on a public document and that their brief, you know, history is going to be in there. And so doing that has allowed us to tell other uh, clients that have retained us your name is not going to be in a public lawsuit right now. You have formally retained us. We can still communicate with, you know, the other side that we have X amount of plaint is retained um, but we don't necessarily have to put their name forward um, but but you know it is it is a reality and it's something that's in you know our agreement that your name is going to be on a public document in a public lawsuit and so if people do want to pursue that that it is a reality that we are very honest about mm-hmm. the other option is in cases that are that are really sensitive for example, um, we, are not, we, we do propose to anonymize some of the claims if people really have concerns. So we do have avenues if people are concerned about about that.
0: Okay, great. And, and how much do you work with uh, with U.S. counsel in pursuing your clients' claims? Is there a lot of cooperation there? And that's both yeah. mass, mass torts and class actions.
1: Hmm. Uh, I mean, if if you're looking for an actual number, I'd say right now about a third of our cases, um, we're not necessarily, you know, formal co counsel with mm-hmm. with any U, U.S. firms, but they, uh, we're definitely, you know, cooperating with them or keeping an eye out on what the U.S. cases are doing. But um, again, the recurring theme, I think, in this podcast is like it's really a case-by-case basis. Right. It depends on when you get the case, right? If we get the case and it hasn't even started in the new U.S., then we're not going to sit around for however many number of years for the U.S. to catch up. Um, meanwhile, if the U.S. is already five years into litigation, then, you know, we might have more of an opportunity to, um, to collaborate with them. It's really important if you are going to work with U.S. counsel, I think that goes to say for anyone that you're going to work with in general to find people that you get along with. right? Oh, yes. You want to find a firm that has the same philosophy, same mentality, uh, and it does take time to build those relationships, but they uh, do definitely um, help. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that even if you don't have a U.S. firm that you're used to working with or, or collaborating with, the U.S. has done such an amazing job in modernizing their courts. And I think people would be really surprised to see how much information is out there for the public to see. They litigate much faster than that, right? Everyone, yes. yep. everyone is pretty aware of that. And mm-hmm. so there's a ton of public information on your cases available through the motions that get filed with the courts, through the public pleadings. Um, so, it's a really good place for anyone who's looking to investigate a potential case that they think might have cross-border litigation. Just start seeing where, where was the case filed? Are there any motions? You know, sometimes there's Dauber motions where you have the list of experts that have already been presented. So, you already know what type of experts you're going to need for the case. So, even without a formal U.S. Uh, counsel relationship it's definitely always helpful to just get on Google, start researching, and you would be pretty surprised at the amount of information that you can find.
0: Yeah, pace is absolutely amazing. I mean, it puts our system to shame, really. So we need something like that in Ontario.
1: Yeah, it really does. And it's especially uh, useful in in both Mass tort and class action cases. It can take us a while to get to discovery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a serious disadvantage on the plaintiff's side to not have access to those key liability documents that you know are there, you know they exist, but to have to wait years to try and find them can really uh, hinder us on, on the plaintiff side. So if you can even get an idea of what the, the liability documents are showing in the States, then you can start building your case here in Canada as you prepare for discovery. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so uh, so let's start comparing then mass torts and, and class actions a, a little more uh, intensely. So are they, are they much more resource intensive mass torts in terms of having to file a statement of claim for each plaintiff? And uh, oral and documentary discovery, that kind of thing? Or do you find they're fairly equal with class actions?
1: Yeah, I would say yes and no. You definitely need a really good team of lawyers and staff if you're going to run mass tort cases. You need people that are very, very organized because from day one, you need to keep track of all of your cases, all of your clients, all of the medical records. Um, so it's definitely very labor intensive from day one. However, you're obviously not spending that time and resource trying to get to certification, which is also a very resource intensive process. Mm -hmm. So I think it really depends at what stage in the case. I think at some stages, mass tort cases are more labor intensive, while at other cases, the class action cases are more uh, labor intensive. Okay,
0: and do you find that mass tort cases take longer than class actions or vice versa?
1: I think they're 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 about the same, to be honest, Um, at times our master cases might resolve, you know, before their say their class action uh, counterpart only because we've been able to identify who our group of plaintiffs are limit. Our number of plaintiffs and assess their damages during the time that the class action is trying to get through the certification stage, right? Mm-hmm. So then we have the advantage of going to Defense counsel and saying, these are a number of cases, this is what we think, um, and that could potentially lead to settlement discussions starting earlier on than the class. Um, but sometimes our cases like take longer because at the end of the day, our mass tort clients ultimately have the say in what they want to do with the case, right? And that's a very distinctive factor between class action and mass torts is that if, if for some reason we get into settlement discussions and an individual client is presented with an offer and they aren't satisfied with that offer and they instruct us to keep going for, going forward, then their case might take longer because that's the individual decision that they choose to make for their case. Um, which is obviously not something that you have in class action. But I think I do think overall that they're pretty comparable in terms of time.
0: OK, uh, and then when it actually comes to settlement, how, how do they differ? Do you, do you find that they settle in a similar way? You know, Is there like a lump sum that's offered to the class or to the mass talk group or how, how does that work?
1: Um, it's it's definitely a case-by-case basis, whether whether it's a lump amount or whether it's individual. Uh, but for the most part, I would say we are really looking at assessing clients' individual situation and their own individual case. Um, so at the settlement stage, really the biggest difference that, that I alluded to in the, in the previous question is you really do have to get instructions from every single client. So you are uh, presenting them with how much you know compensation they're expected to get. you are explaining to them you know how you got to that number. And so when I say that there are some parts of the case that are more labor intensive that is definitely one part of the case where you really have to um, you know take the time to speak to your clients And if you and if you've built a good relationship along the years like I mentioned earlier with them then this part is is much easier um, if you've taken the time to invest. And then um, we also have to deal, a lot of the times, because we do personal injury cases with provincial health insurers at this stage as well. And so one of the other differences is that we are working with the provincial health insurers on getting costing for each individual client so that the provincial health insurer gets a similar um, settlement as the client does, right, and it's proportionate to what that plaintiff, what the healthcare costs for that plaintiff actually were, as opposed to just a general estimate based on, on a class.
0: Has that gotten working with the provincial health insurers? Has, has that gotten easier or harder over the years? Because I've know they, I know they've upped their game on their side a lot in getting, uh, in getting recovery. I mean, how, how does it look from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, generally speaking, both sides maybe didn't communicate as well in in. Prior years, mm-hmm. and I think the and I think the the breakdown in communication is is maybe something that led to them, um, you know, discussing internally amongst themselves. But so, but I think it was two sided. Um, I don't think there's any one side to blame for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that they've always had their provincial subrogation rights, right? Yes, and yeah. so, um, and so that's something that we've. Uh, strive to, to keep in mind from day one, we include them from day one, we tell them about the mediations, we tell them about any settlement discussions. Um, and, and, and they've been very, very uh, good to work with for, from our perspective. So
0: yeah, great. Uh, and so presumably, in some cases, right, you have your own mass torts, you have, you have your own uh, group of plaintiffs, and then there's a class action going on at the same time. Presumably that's fairly frequent. So how does how does the settlement of the class action affect the settlement of the mass tort or vice versa?
1: Um, again, case by case basis, but there have been arguments at times that, you know, while well, the class members in the class action got X amount, therefore that's our position on your individual cases. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely times where they try and get as much consistency between the class action and the individual actions. As best as they can, um, but then there's there's sometimes we actually don't know what's going on with the class, right? If if the if the settlement hasn't been made public yet and they haven't gone through the settlement approval process, we're not privy to any discussions that are going on between class counsel and our mutual defendant. Um, so we do try and just you know keep our our track. You know we we focus on our cases and we focus on our arguments and as much as as needed, we argue that, you know, you may have paid X amount on the class, but that's because you didn't know how many class members you had. Our argument is, you know how many class members, uh, how many plaintiffs are in our mass tort. We've right. told you, we've given you the damages. So um, so yeah, they definitely do have an impact when it's the same defendant, but for the most part, it hasn't necessarily been like a negative impact.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um- And how how does, this is sort of a follow-on question, how does your relationship with class counsel work? Do you you talk to them at all or is it just you're doing your mass tort thing and they're doing their class action thing? How does that work?
1: Um, It depends. It depends. I think initially we are, each firm is focusing on their own cases and as the case goes along, if if we both reach the same point at the same time, then we might start um, having discussions, if we can, you know, about the information that we can share between each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, de- I mean, the, the bar is small, right? We all yes. know each other. <laughs> uh, and, it's all, and it's all very friendly, friendly relationships, so as best as we can to try and resolve the cases for our respective clients, you know, that's our job, right? We're we're trying to get the best result for our clients, and if we can use other people's help to, to get that done, and vice versa, then that works for us. Okay.
0: Have um have any of your mass tort cases proceeded to trial?
1: No, I mean the the mass tort cases that that we've done. Mass tort is. The master art world in Canada is still pretty new, right? And given how long it takes to go to trial, uh, we haven't had to, to do that yet. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if we eventually did. And we're, we definitely prepare all of our cases, you know, across the firm. Like I mentioned earlier, the, the intention when starting Howie Sachs uh, was you know, we are trial lawyers, so it's definitely something that we're prepared to do. Mm-hmm. We've just been fortunate that a lot of our cases have ended up being, you know, favorable settlements. So I can't really say whether they proceed to trial more so than class actions, because there's not a lot of class actions that go to trial legal. Right, so, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, you do you get
0: trial experience in your practice? Is that something that's... Um...
1: Yeah, I do. I'm very lucky that um, I still maintain about, you know, 30 or so regular, I call them regular, um, just everyday sort of personal injury actions, so motor vehicles, slip Mm -hmm. and falls, and those cases proceed to trial, uh, you know, every, every few years or so. And our firm is usually in trial before COVID, obviously, mm. uh, you know, at least twice a year. So between my files and the other lawyers at the firm that need help on trial, we do still get uh, a lot of trial experience. So that's the, the plus side of, of practicing at a firm that not only does class action and mass tort, but does all of the other personal injury stuff is that you get a really good balance of like, I still get to go to discoveries, I still get to go to mediations and pre-trials on a very regular basis on the regular files which you know might take me five years to get on a class action file yeah so yeah it's it's a very privileged position that I'm in very grateful for it
0: great uh so in in mass torts, do you do you think because you mentioned earlier that you were you know you talk to the defendants and defendants say well you know we've settled the class action on this basis and then you come back and say well you didn't know how many people were in the class and we know how many people we have so do you find then that in a mass tort the client recovery is more sort of individually tailored to what their damages actually are than in class actions because you're not dealing with a sort of uh, a big group you're it's more individualized
1: yeah, I mean, I can definitely only speak to you know our cases, um, which we know have class actions that have settled for, and so the only information we have is how much the class settled for. And um, I think I just think overall we get an opportunity to dig into our clients' cases a little bit more. Again, this is just from my experience. We get to know them from day one. We know. More about them, I think. We order all of their medical records. If we need to, we send them to get um, uh, assessed by experts. So I can't say whether the, the recovery is better per se in terms of like financial compensation right. whether it's more or not but is it better in terms of is it a true reflection of what a court would reasonably assess the damages for that person to be? I, I think so. And of mm-hmm. course you know we explain to our clients you know litigation risk and how that might that might impact their. The valuation of their settlement but we do strive as best as we can to um, get compensation is actually reflective of what that individual has gone through okay
0: great and then sort of a follow-on from that i guess is um i mean it, this is this is a tricky question for you, right? Because I'm, I'm about to ask you whether client satisfaction is higher in the mass tort process or the class action process. And you don't want to say that you have any unhappy clients, obviously. Um, but do you, do you find that it's easier maybe to manage client expectations with the mass tort process than in the class action process?
1: I mean, I think that the fact that we do both mass tort and class actions makes it so that I actually end up treating class members and my sort clients in a very similar way, like I can't really turn it off, right? Right. I can't say like, oh, this is a class member, oh, this is my individual client, even though there is definitely a different relationship with them, you know, the individual client I have an individual relationship with. But as class counsel, even though they're not the representative plaintiff, I still have a duty to represent their interest as a class member, right? Mm -hmm. And I, like I said earlier, um, our team in both the master and class action works really hard from day one to establish good communication, to make sure that we're, when I say keeping organized, like that's what helps with your client communication, right? If I can easily find who this class member is and have notes of all of our previous conversations with them, every time I get on the phone with them, I know exactly what I'm talking about. and and. In terms of client satisfaction I think that really helps the class member feel like they are part of the process even if they aren't the representative plaintiff mm-hmm. and really at the end of the day like whether you're an individual client or whether you're a class member they just want to know that the lawyer is on their side and if it means spending five or ten minutes of our time talking to them to tell them what's going on that goes a long way in terms of satisfaction at the end of the case. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we do, again, on both mass torts and class cases, is we really try and keep class members informed. So we send them regular updates, we send them emails. If we are on social media for any of our cases, like Facebook, for example, we make sure that we're posting on that. So. Um, I think if you can apply that approach to your cases across the board, you'll find that overall people are really satisfied because you've taken the time to build the trust with them over the years because it really is a year-long year relationship. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, that helps them, uh, you know, trust your professional judgment and trust mm-hmm. your recommendations. And overall, I hope, leads to better client satisfaction.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and following on from that, presumably you have a sort of really good administrative setup to be able to do that right you have uh you know you have staff you know doing these updates and phoning class members and phoning Plaintiffs to update them, that kind of thing. I mean, how's your administrative setup there at Howie Sacks?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been, uh, like I said, over the last three years, something that we continuously work on. It's a work in progress. We have a very good setup, but every single case brings about its different. new challenges that we didn't maybe have before in another case so we do try and learn if we if we started doing things a certain way in one case and we found that that wasn't really effective and we were getting feedback that 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 things needed to change then we try and apply that to the next case Mm -hmm. but our team uh yeah we have dedicated teams here we also co-counsel not just with us co-counsel but here in in toronto and across canada actually with a lot of other other firms so we do have the resources, not only in-house, but across our co-council firms to keep things um, efficient and organized. And it just means that everyone, you know, being on top of it is something that we all try and do in our practice. But yeah, yeah, sure. um, yeah it's something that if you can get everyone on the same page and if you can uh, explain to your team what the purpose is and why these things are important, then uh, it makes things a lot easier. And at the end of the day, we're super lucky to work with people who are here to help. And so. Mm-hmm it makes everything run, run smoothly. Yeah. Great.
0: And how, um, one final question, I guess, how how has all this been impacted by COVID? I mean, do you, do you find that it's, it was a sort of a dip and then you return back to something of normal or how, how has it gone for you?
1: Um, to be honest, we've, uh, well, first of all, just, just the firm perspective. We were all equipped to work from home well before COVID, we actually had our law clerks hoteling, you know, sharing offices before COVID working part-time from home, working part-time from the office. So getting everyone to work remotely was not an issue. Um, the client management, and especially um, in our cases where clients were in active treatment, I think that was the hardest part. Mm. It was like feeling quite helpless when you're used to being the person that has all the answers for your clients, you know, I couldn't do anything about the fact that the physio places were closed down. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do anything about the fact that the hospitals where they were scheduled for surgery to remove their hernia mesh was closed down. That was the hardest part, like Mm -hmm. for me personally, that was really, really hard. But in the background of all of this, we, are, we were still able to work on, on all of our files, really, um, pretty, pretty effectively. It meant a lot more video calls, you know, with mm-hmm. new clients that we would have, you know, been trying to meet in, in person for the most part. So we adapted pretty quickly, and um, the court closures on our regular files is definitely still something that we're really concerned about, you know, jury trials on on our other cases is, is also something that we're very concerned about. But on, on our class action and mass tort cases, I would say that everything has kept going pretty much as is. I think I would just add for maybe, you know, younger listeners, listeners that are, that are you know, my year, I'm a 2016 call. It's mm-hmm. not like I have 15 years of experience in this area. So anyone that's in law school right now or just starting their articles and is interested in doing class action or mass tort work, I would definitely invite them to reach out to me. You can find me online or shoot me an email or give me a call. And I'm more than happy to talk to people who are interested in this area of law. I come from it from a personal injury background just because that's the type of law that I wanted to do even before knowing that I would end up doing class action and mass tort work, but the class action world, it can be amenable to any type of law that you wanna do, right? So, uh, and it's a very interesting area of law. Like I mentioned before, the bar is very collegial. Um, You end up working with some of the best lawyers in Canada, and as a young lawyer, that's really all I could ask for. So I would definitely um, tell people to, to reach out to me if they're ever interested. Fantastic, Valerie. Well,
0: I'm sure lots of people will be very interested in taking, taking you up on that. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much for your time and have a great day. Thank you. Thank, you. thank you so on. much. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for having me. OK, all the best. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions podcast, hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins, and the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify, or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy.